In March of 1968, a Russian submarine was lurking 1,500 miles north of Hawaii, pointed at the west coast of the United States. It sat ready, waiting to launch its nuclear missiles if it received the order from Moscow, when it mysteriously imploded. This is the story of the United States' frantic attempt to recover that submarine and its nuclear weapons before the Soviets could. Prepare for secret CIA cover stories, a billion-dollar boat, and a surprisingly beautiful funeral ceremony. You're listening to Race and Tyler Talk Wikipedia, Episode 13, Project Azorian. Hey, you. Hey, Tyler. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. How are you? Good. Happy Martin Luther King Day. Same to you. Same to you. Did you have to work today? I did not. Thank oh. my goodness. Yeah, that's nice. What about well, you? Did you work? No, I didn't work today. Um, and we took a bunch of things to Goodwill, which have been sitting in our garage for about six months, saying we should oh. take those to Goodwill sometime. <laughs> Those are the best days. It's a good, it's a good, it's a yeah. great, yeah. And you look around your apartment and it's all <laughs> clean. You're like, are you I, guys I, are in a, ha- you guys are in a house now, aren't you? We are in a house now, yes. Oh, that sounds really nice. Yeah, I was so excited to have a garage and then we just filled it with stuff we needed to take to Goodwill. And, uh, but now it's a little more empty, so we can enjoy the garage. Beautiful. <laughs> I agree. Um, well... I'm very excited to discuss our topic today, but before we do that, I have a get-to-know-you question. All right. And it is related to the topic in um, a small way. So I want to hear about a time that you've lost something or found something or lost something and then found something. Um, Do you have any experiences along those lines? Well, actually, a couple weeks ago, I was out in the field with 100 sheep. And 99 of them stayed with me. They were all together, but one of them got lost. <laughs> this was 2,000 years ago, by the way. I see. And then I went and I found... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh, boy. That was like a Norm MacDonald joke. Oh, boy. Uh, I'm not familiar enough with Norm MacDonald to get that reference. Oh. But I do. He's very funny, what I have heard of him. Norm MacDonald is a, a strange, strange little man. Um, we'll have to, we could do a whole podcast episode about He's a, goofy, yeah. a single Norm MacDonald joke that I'm <laughs> with. Oh, great. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. That'll be a sidebar. Okay. <laughs> no, for real, though, um, immediately when you told me this question, I did think of a story. I think this is probably my only lost and found story. And it's one that my family always tells because when we were kids, Jeremy got lost, my brother. <gasps> Yeah, we were visiting my grandparents in Utah, my mom's parents, and we were hiking somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, and I, I want to say it was Timpanogos Cave, um, but that might be wrong, because I was too young. I didn't really know where we were. I was probably like 14 or 15 at the time, and we went on this hike, and it was a mild enough hike that like my younger sisters were there. You know, it was pretty easy. Sure. Um, but at some point they wanted to turn around. And so I turned around with them and my mom and we, we all went back to the house, but my brother and my aunt and my uncle stayed on the mountain and they kept going. And this was like the first few years of cell phone existence. Sure. And my aunt called my mom on her cell phone and was like, we can't find Jeremy. And (laughs) it was very upsetting. Uh, My mom was a very maternal person. And so, I mean, she absolutely lost it at like very small things. Like first day of school was always a really hard time for her. Like (laughs) (laughs) like kids graduating from primary, it's like anything, you know, was difficult for her. So when her child got lost in the mountain, that was very difficult and it was hard for me at the time to see because I didn't like seeing her cry and be sad you know yeah um he was lost for maybe one or two hours I want to say and I think they had called a rescue mission or like a, a helicopter or something yeah and you know it had been long enough that they called but 
as soon as that happened, he walked down the trail and was like, hey, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and, oh, you know, cool. all, was, all was well in Zion. But um, the funny thing about that story is that Jeremy told me recently that he went back to that spot as an adult. And he was like, I can't believe I got lost over here. Like, it's not that confusing of a trail. Yeah. It would be pretty easy to yell out like, hey, (laughs) I'm over (laughs) here. You know, he's like, I'm surprised I didn't hear them call my name. I'm surprised that they didn't just look over and see me, you know, that kind of thing. Wow. Yeah. And I I was going to say that hasn't kept Jeremy out of the wilderness. No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) I think it just encouraged. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's like every parent's nightmare. That's awful. It's truly, honestly, probably a happier ending than the 99 sheep and the one because we're (laughs) very glad that Jeremy was safe and sound. Right. And I mean, there's only, you don't have 99 children in your family. So no. I mean, that's a bigger percentage <laughs> loss if you lose Jeremy. That's right. Statistically, it would have been, <laughs> right. it would have been a much grosser loss. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I, I promise I did not, we did not arrange this ahead of time, but mine is also about a time that we lost my younger brother. Oh my goodness. But mine is a uh, less, um, heartrending and more embarrassing. So we, um, in 2016, I think it was 27, 2016, um, my sister had moved to Germany. And so, um, my wife and I, and my little brother, um, flew over there and visited them in Germany for a week. And then we spent two weeks, a week with them in Germany, and then a week like out and about doing stuff. Um, so we went to, um, London and we went to Rome and we went to, um, you know, kind of hopped all around and had a really, really, really nice time. Um, We look back very fondly on that. And, but, so we went to Rome and we visited the Vatican and we were standing in line to get into uh, Vatican City, like to get into the walls. And there's very uh, like aggressive salespeople all um, in Rome everywhere. It's a little bit like Mexico, if you've ever been to to like a resort in Mexico or honestly a lot of major cities where there's like tourists and stuff. So people will come up to you and be like, Oh, I can get you the best tour or uh, whatever, you know, you want, Oh, you want to see the wine country come with us. We, we, we've got this bus and all this stuff. Oh, and okay. so um, we were standing in line and this guy came up to us and was like, so for this much money, you come right over to this window right here. I'll get you these special passes and you can do these certain things that normal people can't do, or you get a cut, whatever it was he was saying. And my wife and I were like, no, we'll just wait in line. We don't want to pay extra. And we'll just, anyways. And my brother was like, I'm going to go do this. So we need to come up with a rendezvous point. So I said, we're all headed to the Sistine Chapel. That's like the big thing that we wanted to go do. Mm -hmm. So I said, you go do whatever you're going to do. And then we'll meet in the Sistine Chapel. So uh, Julie and I go along through the the line and whatever. And then we eventually... um, Oh, no, no, no. Yeah, that's, that's essentially correct. We, we split up and then um, we were going to meet in the Sistine Chapel. And we figured we'd get there right about the same time, which turned out to be true. But so Julie and I got there first, standing around. It's very beautiful. There's a guy, an Italian man, yell, standing there yelling, no photos, because you're not supposed to photograph <laughs> the roof. And but they were also like they would bring in like a clump of people and you'd stand there and look around and then they would like usher the clump out. It was like constantly moving. So oh. we get there and we're like, oh, well, we can't meet him here. So we'll just meet him right outside, right? Like we couldn't meet him in the Sistine uh-huh. Chapel, but he's obviously going to get ushered out as we're getting ushered out. Anyway, long story short, we did not wait for him in the Sistine Chapel. And my brother was like, you said wait in the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> he so broke like, the rules. Well, he was like hiding from the guard. Yeah, he broke the guard rules and we broke like the the plain language agreement that we had. And he's like, you said in the Sistine Chapel. I was wondering where you guys were. So we waited outside for like two hours for him. Oh my goodness. And, yeah, and he missed like all of this stuff. He was supposed to go get it due, the extra money he paid to see. Oh no. Because he's standing there like, where are these ding-dongs? And we were like 50 yards from him just outside. Just outdoors. And our oh. phones didn't work because we were, um, you know, in Italy. We, we had Wi-Fi we could, but our service, like, anyway, yeah, yeah. it was this huge nightmare and it's still, 
I mean, I rec- I rec- I take my part of the blame, but I also think that he should have take he should he take his part walked, of the blame. He, he should have walked out. Everyone was clearly being ushered along. He could have assumed <laughs> that's what happened to us. So consider this my public plea to my brother. You should finally fess up and recognize we're both at fault here. But it's on the record now. It is on the record, and so I I lost my brother in Vatican City, and it was it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, yeah. So speaking of things going missing, today we're talking about um, Project Azorian and the Glomar Explorer and the Glomar Response. And in order to get into that, we need to, there's a, a certain Russian submarine we need to understand, and Tyler's going to tell us about it. Yeah, this is called the K-129. It was a ballistic missile submarine that was built in the 1960s. And what a ballistic missile submarine is, is it's basically a submarine that can launch nuclear warheads. It's about as long as a football field, if you were to put it on land. And I learned some new metrics when I was researching the sub, which first of all, one of the metrics that I learned is the draft of a ship. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I never I know what that is. The draft is the distance from the very bottom of the ship to the water line. So that's also considered the amount of water that you need for the ship to float, basically, because if it was any lower, then it just would be sitting. Yeah. And so the draft in this case was 30 feet. So if you were to look at the submarine when it was floating, 30 feet of the boat would be under the water. It was underwater. Oh, okay. All right. Another metric that I learned is endurance. When you talk about the endurance of the submarine, that's how long it can stay underwater without having to go back up. Oh, wow. And this ship, in this case, the endurance was 70 days, which I feel like is a pretty long time to have uh, yeah. that much you know, oxygen I'm, and stuff. I'm shocked by its length. That seems, I guess that's about the size of a submarine. I was going to say that seems small. Oh, like, are they usually bigger? I don't, I don't know. I don't yeah. know. I just, when I think about like a submarine, it seems like it'd be big, but that's, I mean, you can tell that's why it'd be hard to catch them and they can sneak around yeah. everywhere. That's pretty small. That's, and yeah. Then, yeah, 70 days. That's, I am, I also would not have anticipated it being that. <laughs> that's a long time, I would say. Yeah. yeah. Um, by the way, in researching this episode, I realized that I'm very much out of my depth when it comes to like boats and warm. <laughs> things all that stuff. I know there are people out there who are so much more knowledgeable than I am when it comes to this I am you know just scratching the surface here so learning a lot happy to be here (laughs) (laughs) um on board the submarine there were 98 hands that's I guess what it's called when you have a person on a submarine and I was confused like does that mean the two hands of a person is considered a person (laughs) or does that mean 98 people and you just (laughs) call each one (laughs) I'm like is this some kind of metaphorical number here so you think there might be I think there might be 49 people on board and they call it they just have 98 hands 98 hands, 98 testicles. Weirder things have happened, I would say. 98 kidneys, yeah. Yeah, I am 90, I'm 100% sure that that means like like a decade. 98, or like 98 a, like, people. Yeah, like a ranch hand is like someone who lends a hand on the ranch. Yeah, okay. But that's where you get the all hands on deck idiom, right? Right. It's from boats, yeah. Right. So, so I mean, make- I'll give you that. It is confusing because all hands on deck, you know. Sounds like uh, we got two. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy. Um, and then one other detail about this is that it was said to be armed with a missile, an SSN5 Serb missile, and also a megaton warhead. So this was not your average like going under the water for fun submarine. This was yeah. very much a, a vehicle of war. Yeah. As to why the K-129 existed, um, it completed several combat patrols while it existed, which, as far as I know, means it was an active warship, you know, like, basically in the front lines. Not that they ever fired on each other, per se, in the Cold War, but it was ready to, if it had to. Sure. Um, And I didn't find anything distinguishable about this particular submarine as as a pair, like, 
as opposed to the others in the fleet of the Soviet Navy. Yeah. It just seems to be one around which a story developed because of what happened to it. Sure. Yeah, they were they were all just I mean, this one was in the in the North Pacific. So I think its job was just to be ready to send a nuclear weapon to Los Angeles or Seattle if it needed to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a very far distance. That's crazy to think about. Very scary. Yeah. Yeah. So what did you say? How many, what was the distance? Uh, the distance that I found was it was about 1500 miles North of Hawaii, yeah. like Northwest of Hawaii, which yeah. already is, you know, very far out there. Yeah. But that's within it's the, the range of the missiles that you said, right? Oh, what's the range of the missiles? I don't know. Yeah, I think the, oh. I think that's within the range of the missiles. Oh, that's nuts. Yeah. Yeah. That would I guess that makes sense. Very yeah. scary. Very scary. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh unfortunately what happened to the K129 is quite tragic. Um in 1967, it had completed two combat patrols just going around being ready to go. And it was tasked for a third one the next year in 1968. And at one point it crossed the 180th meridian, which I think is interesting because on the globe, that is the opposite of the prime meridian. If you were to cut the world in half into a Western and Eastern hemisphere, then the prime meridian would go all the way around the globe in a circle. And on the other side of the globe, that would be the 180th meridian. Interesting. So like it's like half. Yeah. So it's like the quarter. If you're cutting the apple in half and then in half again, right? Uh, it's like if you cut the apple down the middle, mm-hmm. then the front of your knife is considered the prime meridian on the right. one half that other people can see. And the back of the knife would be the 180th meridian. So it's really okay. just one line cutting it in half, but sure. you're yeah, from different sides. Yeah, okay. Int- okay, I gotcha. Wow. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting to think about. It's also not really close to anything. It's close to New Zealand when you get down south, but up north, there's really just ocean up there. Just open water, yeah. Yeah. So anyways, the submarine is crossing the 180th meridian, and then sometime after that, they miss two of their radio check-ins when you would call in and say, hey, we're good. And that worried the Soviet Navy and um, they kept calling and they, they said more urgent calls like, Hey, please answer this or we're going to assume that you're missing. And they didn't hear an answer back. The ship was declared missing and the Soviet Navy sent out a search and rescue mission with no success. So unfortunately the submarine was presumed sunk. And We know why the Titanic sank. We know that it hit an iceberg. We also know why the white ship sank, which we talked about in our previous episode. The white ship hit a rock. But it's not clear why the K-129 sank. The official hypothesis that the Soviet Navy put out was that the ship was operating in, quote, snorkel mode. And I learned that submarines, I guess, have a snorkel mode that is very similar to people when they go snorkeling (laughs) which is we're gonna go under the water but we have this tube of air that sticks out so we can still breathe and i think that probably is used to preserve the air that they have you know why waste the canned oxygen if you can just use what's up above you yeah and why why come up to the surface and potentially expose yourself it's kind of a happy good point yeah Uh Yeah. it's like kind of like in the cartoons when the submarine is going around and you see the periscope yeah or or like in the cartoons where somebody grabs a straw and just like lays down in the water and is breathing <laughs> in the weeds yeah exactly bugs yeah. or whoever exactly yeah. yeah so like a person when you're snorkeling i think it can also happen to a submarine where if you go under the water too far the water will go in your snorkel Oof. and it would sink the ship yeah That's the hypothesis that the Soviet Navy gave. However, according to Wikipedia, it's not widely accepted at all. Hmm. Um, And there were other explanations for why the ship might have sunk. They're kind of technical. One is like the batteries might have exploded. One is that they may have collided with a specific American submarine called the USS Swordfish. Hmm. And each of these theories, like it actually has a pretty detailed explanation as to why it would It'd be the one. 
Wow. I found one of the most interesting theories to be like the most literary. And this is a weird one. <laughs> <laughs> There's one theory, especially according to this one particular scholar, but it's gotten some traction, which is that the crew might have been in a scuffle and operational orders on the ship may have been like totally thrown out the window. Almost oh. like if there was like some kind of mutiny or something. Yeah, like a takeover. Right. And he hasn't a specific explanation for why this would happen. And he says the boat was 300 miles north of where it should have been. Wow. And I'll just read this direct quote. He says, if that was a navigational mistake, it would be an error of historic proportions. <laughs> Thus, if the sub were not somewhere in the vicinity of the so- where the Soviets were supposed to be, there would be a high probability, if not a certainty, that the submarine was a rogue off on its own in grave disobedience of its orders. Wow. So in his interpretation, the crew is just off the rails. Like, can't be tamed. We're going where we want to go. Wow. And that's how it led to its sinking. So Uh, I was was disturbed by the idea of there being like these organized patrols of Russian subs with nuclear weapons pointed at the United States. Right. I think I'm even more disturbed by the idea that one of them's like, we're doing it our own way. <laughs> we're going rogue. <laughs> and they've got a nuclear warhead. <laughs> Very, you know. Yeah. It, it triggers the imagination. <laughs> yes, it does. So that brings us to the Glomar Explorer, which is a second boat. And if you think about it, so we're in the middle of the Cold War. Uh, We're aiming nuclear weapons at the Russians. The Russians are aiming nuclear weapons at us. Everyone's very nervous. Fingers on the trigger, as they said. And um, then we have um, reason to believe, we we figure out that a Russian nuclear submarine, one of these kind of terrifying, you know, shadows out in the ocean has um, sunk for whatever reason. Like we said, we we didn't really know and nobody knows now. Um, um, to this day exactly why, but we know that there's a Russian submarine that has sunk. And we, um, the, and by we, I mean the United States, we happened because we, um, out of um, naval bases and whatnot in Southern California, we're listening to, um, you know, scanning the ocean for sounds. We heard an implosion. Apparently that's a thing we can do in the ocean is hear, hear noises on that level. And, and we had reason to believe that we kind of knew where this Um, submarine was and if you think about it in that situation uh, it behooves the United States to get our hands on that for a few reasons one is um, we obviously don't know very probably very well what the inside of a Russian submarine looks like nor what their nuclear capabilities are and so it would be very good for us to be able to kind of um, you know get a, a prototype of it get and look at it and see you know we think that their missiles can reach this far is that right Let's find out because that's, um, you know, very good tactical information to have. This is a reason that um, sometimes you'll see in movies and and often happens in real life. If a vessel, a boat, or most often an aircraft um, crashes or has to be left in enemy territory, um, it's military, it's standard operating procedure in like a, in a combat zone to destroy it because you don't want the other side, first of all, being able to get it and then use it. But even if it's not usable, like if it's a helicopter that'll never fly again, you still don't want them knowing how it works and, you know, potentially Uh gaining inside information. So the fact that we kind of knew where this boat was, this submarine was, um, was a big deal. So the United States um, intelligence apparatus decided we're going to go get this thing. Um, So this is where the Glomar Explorer comes in. So it was um, 600 feet long. So a big um, deep sea drilling vessel. It was commissioned by, um, and it was built in 71 and 72 at the direction of Howard Hughes. And Howard Hughes, um, is that's a great Wikipedia entry to go dive into. He was an interesting guy. He's kind of like um, like the Elon Musk of the day, but more likable potentially. Um, I can't believe it was Howard Hughes. I didn't realize that. Howard Hughes. Well, so <laughs> Howard Hughes at the behest of the CIA. Oh, I was going to say, because he's not government involved. Right. So they asked him to do that. Okay. Exactly. So Howard Hughes. And he had the cash. Yeah. Exactly. So he was this eccentric billionaire, you know, rich kind of um, 
industrialist and he was into everything. Um, the film, the aviator is about him and he's kind of a very interesting and flamboyant character and, um, was investing in aircraft advancements and all sorts of interesting things. So I, my guess is we obviously don't have a ton of information about this, but my guess is that that wouldn't raise many eyebrows for Howard Hughes to pay mm. a boatload of a literal boatload of money for this yeah. huge, crazy industrial boat. Whereas, you know, other people it might, uh, or, you know, some shell corporation <clears throat> people would be like, who's doing this? Who's, but so Howard Hughes was approached by the CIA and he agreed to help. So he said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, it's this deep sea drilling vessel. And the, the story was that they were going to use it to collect manganese, the, the elements, the metal manganese from the ocean floor, which in theory is actually possible, but it's very impractical. And when this was announced, people were like, oh, Howard Hughes has figured out a way to do this. And it actually kind of created like some buzz in the oh. ocean mining <laughs> industry because they're like, oh, cool, <laughs> like, maybe we can do it. It's um, like, uh, sorry to tell yeah, you. Good, good luck. <laughs> good luck. <laughs> yeah. And it was, uh, so Howard Hughes, owned, Howard Hughes owned this company called Global Marine Development, shortened in very 1970s fashion to Glomar. <laughs> that is very true. <laughs> it is. And it's very, one of the things I love about this story in this Wikipedia entry is it's very Bond villainy. Like, oh, the, yeah. Oh, Glomar is behind Glomar. all of it. And so Glomar builds this boat. It cost in 2020 dollars um, almost a billion and a half dollars. It was exceedingly oh. expensive. Yeah, oh. <laughs> for this one boat. And its its true purpose was not to collect manganese from the bottom of the ocean, but be able to reach down into the ocean and grab something. In this case, the K129. And it needed to reach down. The K129 um, crashed in in pretty deep, like kind of exceptionally deep waters. It went down um, 16,000 feet, so about three miles. Oh. Huh. And um, that's pretty deep to, to go yeah, that's very and grab deep. something. And so, um, but that was the Glomar Explorer. It was this very expensive, um, very expensive vessel that was created with literally one mission in mind. It wasn't like, oh, let's make a submarine grabber ship that we can use to grab submarines. Yeah. around the world it was we need to grab this single submarine um, as soon as possible as well because the russians were obviously looking for their ship for obvious reasons and they had to have suspected that the united states if they knew about it would you know want to get it from the bottom and take it for themselves as well so it was um it was kind of a race and and you can see that by the fact that this um the sub went down and within six years the United States was, you know, I, I picture, I'm sure this is not how it works, but I picture like those arcade dangly claw hands, you know, <laughs> you're trying to Same. grab like a, yeah, like a stuffed SpongeBob. Um, Which you can never grab it. No, it's impossible. <laughs> and as, as we'll see, the Glomar uh, Explorer had similar problems. But, um, but yeah, I mean, we went from, hey, we think we know where the submarine is. And in six years, that's pretty fast to spend you know a billion and a half dollars and build this special boat go out find the submarine and um and try and pick it up off the bottom of the of the sea which just kind of underscores we were in a rush to do this this was kind of a matter of highest urgency in the intelligence world i would imagine because we were just desperate for any information about what the russians actually what their capabilities actually were because mm -hmm. you know we were all we we both kept our arsenals very secretive and just kind of assured the world like, oh, we could definitely strike Moscow if we wanted. And they were like, oh, we could definitely strike DC if we wanted. But we didn't really ever know if that was true. And as a matter of fact, it seems looking back that um, usually America was ahead and Russia often didn't have the capabilities that we assumed they did. Um, so they weren't, the, oh, huh. they weren't the threat that they, or, or it took them longer to kind of get to where we thought they might be. Like they could probably reach DC. Well, they were actually probably a few years away from that, but that's really good information to know. You want to know as much about the uh, nuclear warheads headed your way as possible, as you can imagine. So when the time for the mission actually came, it was kind of a mixed result. So the ship was built. It did what it was supposed to do, but because they assume the construction of the submarine was kind of different than they anticipated, they reached down with their arcade claw, grabbed this thing, and as they raised it, um, two-thirds of the submarine fell away, 
and oh. the United States actually only was able to um, raise one third of the submarine. So we didn't get the missiles, which we were very sad about. We wanted to see the missiles and we didn't get the, like the code breaking information, like the code books or the code machines, mm. which we were exceedingly interested in getting as well. Um, but what we did get was um, we, um, it, it was considered to be one of the like biggest intelligence scores of the cold war because we we finally got to see inside one of these things so it was considered a success even though we didn't get all the things that we want we did get the united states did get the torpedoes which were also nuclear nuclearly capable they had um small nuclear charges on them as well presumably for other um for like other vessels not for striking land of course because it's a torpedo so we got that. And then the other thing that the United States recovered was the bodies of six Russian or Soviet um, sailors, six Soviet submariners. Mm. And so in so they they performed a ceremony when they recovered these bodies and they filmed it. And in 1992, they actually turned that over to the to um, to at what would then be Russia because the Soviet Union had collapsed by that point. So they turned it over to Russia as kind of a gesture of goodwill and showed them what they did. Um, and so it was a, a ceremony, like a, a, a ceremony honoring these Russian sailors or Soviet sailors and a burial at sea. And Tyler, you watched the video as well. And we're going to insert a clip of it, hopefully here, the audio. Um, but I am just floored by watching this old, creepy CIA video. Same. Um, Same. The yeah. thing that gets me the most is it is incredibly respectful and considerate. Yes. Um, and I don't know I, if that's for optics purposes. And if like, but why would you f do it and then film it and then release? I guess maybe to get goodwill, but it would be just as easy to, yeah. to just do whatever you want and not film it. So I, I, I tend to believe that this is, pretty sincere like respect for these dead soviet sailors i felt when i watched it um first of all you start off and it's kind of haunting because there's no sound it's just like <laughs> the noise of them moving the bodies around and you're like what is this creepy video that i'm looking at and then by the end you're like almost in tears yeah like, it's unbelievable i i was just really blown away by how like you said, it's very respectful, but also the comments that the guy had when he was delivering the eulogy, I thought were just like extremely moving and oh, very, very thoughtful. Well, yeah, I listened to it. I've heard it before multiple times, but I watched it again in preparation for this and twice. And I am pretty sure that the person speaking, whoever this like, you know, CIA or whoever dude is, I think he's crying. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh, in yeah. recording, listeners, listen to where he quotes um, from the Bible where he says, we hope that one day um, men will beat their swords into pruning hooks and we will make war no more. He takes this long pause and I think he's choked up. This service is being conducted to honor Viktor Lokov, Vladimir Kosciuszko, Valentin Nosichev and three other unidentified Soviet submariners who perished in March of 1968 in the North Pacific Ocean when their ship suffered a casualty of unknown origin. In a very real way, this ceremony has resulted from the continuing contentions between our two nations. Their casualty happened at a time when they were engaged in activities which they deemed to be in their national interests and protection. Their bodies have come into our possession some six years later through activities on behalf of our country, which we feel fit the same criteria. The fact that our nations have had disagreements does not lessen in any way our respect for them and the service they have rendered. And so, as we return their mortal remains to the deep, we do so in a way that we hope would have had meaning to them, enclosed with the representative portion of the ship on which they served and perished. As long as men and nations are suspicious of each other, 
instruments of war will be constructed and brave men will die as these men have died in the service of their country. Today we honor these six men, their shipmates, and all men who give their lives in patriotic service. May the day quickly come when men will beat their swords into plowshares and spears into pruning hooks, and nation shall not rise up against nation, neither shall there be war anymore. Some of the things that struck me, so the, the, the video, which you should go watch on your own, but it begins by playing the United States national anthem, followed by the Soviet national anthem, and then this kind of short, brief ceremony where they, like Tyler said, there's kind of a chaplain who makes some remarks. And then at the end, it says, um, it finishes by, they say, we don't know what the Soviet ceremony is for burying a soldier at sea but we have some idea and we're going to do our best to recreate it as best as we can, as these men would have been honored by their own country. And then following that, we're going to perform the ceremony that we perform for American soldiers who are lost at sea. And then they do both of those and, um, and then, you know, release the bodies back into the ocean. But it's really a startling, stunning, weird little kind of time capsule of history. And I'm absolutely shocked that it was recorded that it was saved and that it's now just on the internet. For it's anyone. just public. Yeah. It's actually on the Wikipedia page. You don't it's, even yeah. go to like YouTube or anything. Yeah. It's on YouTube, but it's, it's just, it's embedded in the Wikipedia page. Yeah. It's wild. Um, I was so moved when um, he makes a comment that I, first of all, I feel like whoever wrote the eulogy was like literary minded. Oh, they nailed I'm it like, down. you're, you're putting so much attention into this. He makes a comment and he's like, as long as, men are suspicious of each other then war weapons of war will arise yeah and i'm like this is so poetic like he and that's that's such a that's that's a that's a thesis statement like war is about suspicion that's beautiful yeah and i loved the reference to swords into plowshares which comes from an isaiah verse that is so beautiful i just want to read what it says please 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 This is from Isaiah. It says, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Isn't that just a beautiful image of all of your weapons of war being converted into tools for yeah. peaceful purposes. Yeah. I really, really love that image. Right. And the fact that he is saying this at a moment when the purpose of this, you know, voyage was to pick a weapon of war up off yeah. the ocean floor and use it to presumably make better weapons of war. Right. It's very, uh, I just, it was like unreal. It's almost indescribable. I, I totally agree. I think the verse itself is v- very beautiful. That's certainly one of the more stunning, some of the most stunning language from the, from the Bible, mm-hmm. if you ask me. I that. really like that. Yeah. yeah, it's about as beautiful as it gets. And um, yeah, the fact that they included it there. And frankly, my, I consider that to be my, uh, my Bible study for the day. So I... <laughs> Uh, thank you for reading that. That was great. Um, but yeah, every you should go listen to the uh, to the the recording. It's it's quite um, just the the tone is not what you would expect. Like you said, they, there's these two powerful nations locked in like a this huge arms race, and yet it was there was nothing even approaching like any sort of malice or ill will well, in the words. And that's what surprised me was I thought going into it, like that it was going to be cursory. It's like, yeah, of course we have to give them a funeral. If they find out that we didn't, they would be so angry. You know, they don't want (laughs) to step on anybody's toes, Yeah, but they didn't have to do it so beautifully. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I don't know. I found it very moving. I I agree. And they say at the beginning, like the, the language at the beginning was striking where they said, these men were out doing what they thought was their duty, mm-hmm. which was protecting their homeland. And we are here doing 
the same, what we feel is the same. And mm -hmm. we kind of recognize that there's like an equivalency and we're just all trying to do our best out here. It's, it's pretty shocking. Right. It made me think like, so um, Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan. Um, you and I, were we living together, Tyler? I think we were actually. I, I think that's I, right. Okay. I remember getting that phone call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, so Osama bin Laden was killed. Um, his body was taken from Pakistan and taken to a United States, a ship, a U.S. Navy ship, um, wherever that was. I didn't look this up beforehand, but, and then after like verifying that it was definitely him, because that's a concern, especially after Osama or Saddam Hussein and his many, you know, lookalikes, um, he was buried, uh, um, in accordance with, um, Muslim tradition at sea within 24 hours of his death, I believe it is. Anyway, um, I doubt that they said anything as beautiful or as like reverential. I doubt no they way. were like, and, and I don't, I don't really fault them. Like I said, I wouldn't have faulted these people in the seventies for being like, look, we're trying to take the commies down as best we can. You know, we'll be respectful of some dead bodies, but we're not going to like pray for peace over these bodies and do anyway. You just, I doubt that they were like, look, Osama was just, he was trying to get his, like we're trying to get ours and, you know, right. mad respect, or, bro. <laughs> like you said, the equivalency, like there's almost an air of it could have been us, yeah. you know, yeah. like we're sailors too. Yeah. Like there's no reason this didn't happen to us and happen to you. Yeah. Yeah, it's just very, very, um, just beautiful. Yeah, a, a, it, that that like eight minute video, whatever it is, is just a kind of a very wild little time capsule. But yeah. anyway, so the, the, the fate of this whole mission, so it was a partial success, but I, we already talked about the cost of the boat, but um, the, um, the, the mission itself was exceedingly expensive. And then after it was over, they were stuck with his boat <laughs> that had one purpose that isn't really useful to anybody else. And um, so from March to June of 76, the General Services Administration, which is a government um, agency that does this kind of thing, they were like s selling, like trying to sell the boat. Like, who wants to lease the ship? Does anybody have a use for this thing? This and is the Glomar boat, the boat that the found Glomar the boat. submarine. And so oh, okay. I was going to say the submarine wasn't usable. <laughs> no, 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 no. But by in June of 76, so this is just months after they'd raised this boat, they're instantly like, okay, we don't need this billion dollar boat anymore. Goodness. And, oh. and they tried to get rid of it. And I only mention this because this is, this is exactly why the Lord invented Wikipedia, this exact thing right here. So by the end of the four months of advertising, trying to get someone to take this boat off their hands, they had a $2 million, or no, a $2 offer submitted by a Lincoln, Nebraska college student. <laughs> I just love that that made it into the footnotes of history that some kid was like, I'll give you. I'll do it. I mean, I, it's a bid. I got two bucks. Yeah. Uh, it's like on uh, like on Craigslist where they say, or best offer. Like if he was the best yeah. offer, maybe they would have given it to him. He could have been, yeah. Yeah. But it was hugely expensive to maintain because it was this kind of unique purpose specialty built um, vessel. And so basically right after it tried to get to the sub submarine, it was mothballed. It was put in um, docked away and not maintained anymore. And um, so it was a very expensive and very quick and mostly successful or at least partially successful kind of um, endeavor. And then as soon as it was over, it just kind of went on the, went on the trash heap. This is a pretty big story. And you can imagine that in the 1970s or even now, if uh, the public was to find out that the CIA was, you know, scooping up stuff from the bottom of the ocean, um, people might be kind of upset that they were spending their money that way or, you know, going about whatever purpose in kind of a secretive way. And in 1975, the Los Angeles Times got wind of the story the Project Azorian, and they were going to publish it, and the CIA attempted to prevent that. And a journalist reached out to the CIA to confirm, the ex first of all, confirm two things. First of all, the existence of Project Azorian, and secondly, confirmed that they had attempted to cover the story. And their response to the journalist was, 
we can neither confirm nor deny the existence of the information requested, but hypothetically, if such data were to exist, the subject matter would be classified and could not be disclosed. (laughs) (laughs) Which is not the first time that we've heard that, but this is kind of a landmark moment for this response. Um, In the 20th century, there were news reports where people would say things like, we can neither confirm nor deny the Ford power plant is making some kind of new Model T or whatever. Uh, but anytime that they used it, it was kind of as like a no comment statement. And Whereas like, this, is, this is more specific than that. Well, and like I can imagine in its original form, it literally was like, we can't say for sure whether this is actually going to happen. Like, can't can, say for sure because we don't know. Because yeah. we don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. We don't know is different. Than... Right, right. Um, and, you know, there's kind of a question as to why you would frame a statement that way that obviously race you being a, a lawyer now you know a lot more of the ins and outs of why people talk like this yeah. <laughs> um but i was kind of an imagining like first of all why you would say something like this and so i was imagining like pretend you have don geis and he has a wife in america and he has a mistress in canada and neither of them know about the other person and a journalist goes up to Don Geis and they say, Don, do you love your wife? If he says yes, he's going to make the mistress in Canada upset. Mm-hmm. But if he says no, he's going to make the wife in America upset. So Don would really prefer to answer to the journalist, I can neither confirm firm nor deny this. Right. And the very fact that the question has been asked puts into motion some kind of harm or danger that wouldn't have been there if you didn't ask the question in the first place. Right. Although, I mean, realistically, to be fair, it wouldn't be the problem either if Don wasn't lying to these two women. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, like, get it together. Yeah. So, that I yeah, as, as someone who's gone to law school, this really does kind of speak to me. It's almost hilarious because, it, like, the longer you've been in the law, it seems, like when I talk to people who've been around for a long time um, in the legal world, like, and this isn't a, a negative thing necessarily, but like, you almost can't get a straight, and I don't, like I said, I don't mean to imply that they're being dishonest, but like, I've literally asked, um, I asked a kind of a mentor one time, like about a restaurant and they were like, well, look, I don't want to say it's the best restaurant, <laughs> but and just because we're used to like, we, lawyers really don't like to be able to get pinned down. Like you, yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's like, well, look, is it good? Absolutely. Is it the best? Who can say, you know? (laughs) So it's funny the way you see that kind of mindset. And as you can imagine, whoever the CIA, um, you know, journalist liaison person is, is probably going to be really good at dancing around stuff. And, and yeah, it's just great. Like, you know, do you have these reports? If you say yes, but you can't have them, then it's like, okay, so the reports exist. We didn't know that. And if you say, no, we don't have any reports. It's like, wait, you don't know, you know, like you're you're either admitting that you've got something and that you're going to call more attention to it, or you're admitting that you don't have something. And so it's just better to be like, maybe we do, maybe we don't. If we did, we wouldn't tell you anyways. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, I think it's funny because like, like you said, like a lot of times if you, it's like, if you answer no to this question or if you answer, I'm not going to answer, then the person just assumes okay that means no right like no comment is just kind of assumed to be like oh so you did find like a submarine on the bottom of the ocean that's what you're saying if you didn't then you would just say no you know that kind of thing um have you ever heard of the streisand effect i had i have not heard of this oh this is very funny uh or at least funny to me it's not funny to Barbara Streisand. <laughs> this is an effect, that a phenomenon that is named after Barbara Streisand. And it was in the early 2000s. There was some kind of um, lobbying group that had taken aerial photos of the coastline of California. And they were using them to uh, point to Congress and be like, hey, there's erosion going on. We need to, to fix this. And because it was governmentally involved, the photos were public on the internet. And so anybody could go look at them. 
And if you were to go look at them, you could click through the photos and you could see Barbara Streisand's house. Okay. So <laughs> Barbara Streisand finds out about this and she's so upset. She sues the company that had put the photos together. And because of the lawsuit, there was this big media frenzy. And where before the lawsuit, there had been like a total of six different people who had clicked on that website. <laughs> After the lawsuit, like 500,000 people had clicked the website to look at the picture of her house. Yeah. So the Streisand effect is when like trying to suppress something ends up unintentionally meaning that okay, okay it's like extra out there now like literally everyone is looking at your house now yeah. and if you had kept quiet maybe one no one would have looked wow i have never that is a fabulous story <laughs> um, <laughs> it's very funny yeah i i feel like it kind of ties into this i'm not sure why those remind me of each other but it's well, almost just the nature of like the fact that the question is being raised is what's drawing attention to it. Absolutely, yeah. And it kind of, it also makes sense because presumably the reason Barbara Streisand didn't want photos of her home on the internet was for some sort of privacy purpose. Right. And, um, you know, maybe she was worried that people were going to see what her house was laid out like and they could build their own, you know, they, it's just like, like picking it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like picking up this sub off the bottom of the ocean. She was right. worried they were going to learn too much. <laughs> same exact thing yeah wow the streisand effect i love that and i love that it's now called that which is uh, also fits in with this like look at what you've done barbara now everyone uses your name to refer to like trying to keep a <laughs> the secret streisand, the name of the streisand effect is the streisand, is the streisand effect, effect. Yeah, oh, that's great that's really true Just some footnotes to wrap up this episode, we mentioned that the Glomar Explorer cost about a billion and a half dollars to build in 2020 money, but we didn't mention that the overall cost of the mission itself was about four billion dollars. To put that into perspective, the amount of money spent on Project Azorian in 1974 was nearly double the entire yearly budget for the EPA in that same year. Second, there's an intriguing conspiracy theory that says that Project Azorian was also up to other things down there at the bottom of the sea, such as building an underwater nuclear missile silo or tapping into the undersea fiber optic cables in order to spy on the Soviets. We do know that the US did eventually attempt to tap those undersea cables in an operation codenamed Ivy Bells, whose fascinating wiki page is also worth a read. Finally, notice when I discuss how lawyers dislike being pinned down, I try to avoid being pinned down as taking the position that lawyers dislike being pinned down. Thank you for listening. We love making these episodes and our listeners motivate us to keep recording. If you want to send us a message, suggest an episode topic, or just say hi, check out at Race and Tyler pod on Twitter or on Instagram. Check out at Race and Tyler talk Wikipedia, or you can email us at race and Tyler talk Wikipedia at gmail.com.